0: This is Leave Your Mark. I'm Vince Cortez, and today's guest is Ellen Paul. She is an author of more than a dozen novels. As a freelance journalist, she has written most often for the New York Times Magazine and the Times Arts and Leisure section. Ellen grew up in Long Island, New York, and went to college at UC Santa Barbara, and she currently resides in New York City. Ellen, thank you for being my guest here today.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm delighted.
2: Hi there and welcome. Now it's time for America's favorite podcast. Leave your mark with your host, Vince Cortez. If it's flat, loose fit it, it's Cortez. If freezing shoppers in it, it's Cortez. Leave your mark. It's about inspiring the world. One guess at a time. Pass the word from Brooklyn to Pittsburgh, from urban to suburb, it's Cortez, you heard? And here is our host, Vince Cortez. Well,
0: yours is an interesting story from the standpoint that you, at a very young age, experienced quite a bit of trauma. And um, at age seven, it's kind of difficult to comprehend what, what it was you went through. But we're going to give you the opportunity to share as best as you can today. Um, so what I'd like to start with, this is where you started life out at in Rosslyn, New Jersey.
1: Rosslyn, New York.
0: Oh, Russell, New York. I'm sorry, New Jersey. Shame on me. Um, (laughs) So your parents, David, uh, you said that he was an inventor and a scientist. Mm -hmm. And Mother Josephine was a commercial artist and a painter. Um, You had two siblings, Steffi and Billy. And your childhood experience was traumatic. Your mother passed when you were seven. Can you share with me uh, what your childhood was like? In, in the household with the three of you?
1: Well, I didn't understand that she was going to die at all. Um, I think, you know, as she got more ill and lost her energy, um, I was kind of angry, like, why doesn't she have time to play with me? I just didn't get it. Um, obviously, it was my father was overwhelmed because he had, three kids to take care of and he was not really that kind of person so when he told me that she had died there was a phone call he called me into his study he said your mother is dead and I was thunderstruck and Mm. I thought it was my fault which a lot of children do
0: it's hard to for someone that age to really comprehend especially if you weren't being filled in it's like Um, If that wasn't your father's nature to provide that kind of information for you, I couldn't even imagine how shocking that was. Oh, yes. You you said that um, you knew instinctively that something was wrong with her. Well, I could
1: see that she was, you know, she was going to bed more often. She was absent a lot. She had to go to the hospital, get transfusions, you know, but nobody said this is a lethal illness. She will be dying. And in fact, a child, uh, a playmate told me, your mother's going to die. And I remember that very well saying, she's not. (laughs) And then she did. So, yeah, it was Mm. very traumatic. Yeah. I actually thought the family was going to split up right away. I ran to my room, sat alone and thought, wow, it's like the the... Like main act in the circus is no more there. So there's nobody to keep us together. And uh, how am I going to live on my own? I don't have any money. I don't know. Yeah.
0: Now you referenced that your sister stepped in and began to behave like mom. Mm -hmm. And she's probably still a child herself. So
1: she was um, 16. But yeah, she was traumatized too. At least she knew what was going on, I think.
0: Now, how did the three of you children, um, bond? I mean, because you're all are experiencing the same loss. Uh, do you become closer with your sister and brother or? Well, certainly my sister, she was
1: like, like an older sister. <laughs> she was, she was not mean. To, well, yeah, they were mean to me. <laughs> they would make bets on whether I was going to school or not. My brother and sister, cause I was, apparently I was absent so often whining about what's wrong with me and, uh, So, you know, my brother teased me mercilessly. He was six years older. Um, So he was really traumatized himself. He was 13. He had been her favorite. And um, and he really couldn't step in. But my sister did. And God, I was, I mean, she wasn't maternal sort. Um, But she was, she saved my life. That very night she came down and said, don't worry, we're all going to stay together. You know, you can use my phone if you want to call your friends and tell them (laughs) it was it was a miracle, and she was that way all her life, and she was nuts. <laughs>
0: For me,
1: <laughs> I could call her at two in the morning crying, and she was always there. Wow. Yeah.
0: Now, you said also then, shortly thereafter, your father got remarried. So, how long after your mom died was shortly like when you're young, time kind of goes by? Six months. Oh, wow. Yeah so
1: dated earlier
0: okay how are you and your siblings managing another person being around
1: very badly (laughs) very reluctantly and with in from well i think for all of us we moved from this very modest house in a development for uh uh sold you know world war ii gis who had finished the war and needed a new place to live and um so that was my first home and it was very modest and then my stepmother who for better or for worse had of great ambitions to rise in the social world um realized my father had a lot of money and we bought or he bought a mansion i mean really a, it's not quite a mansion but certainly the biggest house around where we lived on a big mm-hmm. top of a hill very fancy decorations they started collecting American art and had a major collection by the time my father died. So it was really different. My mother was never mentioned, never. There was no picture of her. It was like she'd never existed.
0: Now, how old was you, how old were you and your father passed away then?
1: Old. He lived to be 90. He had had to go okay. through eight years of Alzheimer's which for a brilliant man was a nightmare.
0: All right, so let's jump back then so now you're approaching teen years, and you're going to high school, and you were already involved in the reading and writing and interested in the guitar. So how are you managing at this tender teen years of moving forward with life?
1: I think that I was a storyteller from the time I was, well, certainly seven after my mother died. I lived in my imagination. That's that was my refuge, and then and books. I read very early, and uh, and am still still my refuge, and books are still my you know greatest pleasure in life. So that didn't change a whole lot. I, I was twelve. I was twelve when I started falling in love with first John Keats and then John Donne. <laughs> I wanted to be a poet, which thankfully I didn't do. But um, that was what sustained me.
0: Now, you get on with high school and you go to UC Santa Barbara as a double major in English and French. And you have a published novel at the age of 22. So that writing is now taking root. Like we see a direction your life is going to go after this childhood tragedy. So share with me the inspiration on that book and the title of it.
1: My Father... Picked me up from college when I'd come home to visit one day. And on the way home, he said, So, what are you going to do for a living? And I thought, A living? What? (laughs) I've never connected education with making money. So I said, I want to be a writer. You (laughs) know, like, how's that? And he very generously said, Okay, I will support you for six months. You have to get a part-time job, but um, I'll cover the rest and uh, you see if you can publish a book <laughs> in six months. And I did um, because I, ch- I chose a genre novel and I read a bunch of them and I learned how to do them. And it was, I, they were all right. They were funny. They were Georgia Hayer books. She was the only one who wrote Regency novels at that time. And um, they were quite delightful. So I wrote, you know, I copied that and made up my own little plot. And then my high school date at the junior prom had become an agent and his friend in college had become an editor and we were probably all under 23 by the time the book came out. Wow. Yeah.
0: Exciting times though. I mean, because this is definitely a, a turning point and what you had gone through in your youth. And y- you're now, you're set free, you're on your own, you're educated, and it's time to uh, get on with your own career. Uh, yeah. uh, now, um, you Regency romances, you wrote nine of them. And so uh, during that time of writing the romances, um, you are going through and you get married at the age of 32.
1: Well, I had actually stopped writing them before that. I think I stopped writing them when I was about 28. And then I wrote my first book under my own name.
0: Okay. So so then those previous novels were under a different name.
1: They sure were. And And... the reason they were under Fiona Hill. And the reason I chose to have a pseudonym was I thought I was going to write only one of them. And then my father would say, well done. Okay. I will continue to support you, which he could afford to do. And he was very generous. But instead, he said, great, you're on your way. <laughs> that was that. So, you know, I had no way to earn a living except to keep writing more
2: Regencies. Connect with us on LinkedIn. Be our friend on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You are listening to, listening to Vince Cortez. We just want you to leave your mic. Oh, this is excellent.
0: So one thing begets another here. So when does your husband show up?
1: Oh, um, we didn't meet till I was 30, I'm trying to do the math. I was born in 52. <laughs> we married in 86. So I guess I was 34. Right. I can't do math, but,
0: That's okay. but a long You're time really, really later. later. Exactly. Okay. So in your early thirties now, um, so you're you're married, and you decide that you're going to adopt a child. How does that come to pass with your husband? And that doesn't happen immediately. That's uh, what, like five or six years after you're married. So, what was the uh, process there, and and what made you then between the two of you decide to adopt?
1: Well, I actually didn't know if I wanted a baby. <laughs> I've never been, I had never been particularly interested or good with babies. And, um, but my sister died. Um, She was 45. I -hmm. was in my, I guess, early thirties. And um, I realized like, she didn't have kids and I wanted to leave some kind of tendril is how I thought of it Mm -hmm. behind. I didn't want to just die. And so we started trying to have a baby that didn't work. Then we started deciding if we wanted to adopt. We spent a year with adoption counselor figuring this out. And then we started looking for a kid and um, you know, a couple who needed a, adoptive parents. And uh, that didn't take as long as you would think, but it took a while. And then the, we met them before he was born. Okay. And their decision whether to, you know, we thought they thought we would be good parents. So um, so there was yet more time while he gestated to, to ready to be born. And then he was ready to be born. And he was born. And um we for better or for worse, we picked him up at the hospital when he was 36 hours.
0: Wow. And, yeah. So now you're a new mom and relatively newly married and How does life begin to unfold from here?
1: Well, first, I was completely in love. It was the first time I'd ever been in love with someone and no one was saying, are you sure? I think you should take it slow. You know, he may not be the guy for you, (laughs) which is what people do when you're, you know, your friends do when you fall in love suddenly. But I was just... there's a word for it but I was infatuated I was so thrilled and it was so natural to me which surprised me because my mother died when I was seven and got sick when I was five and how much could I remember of this well a lot turned out it was Mm. very natural and Mm. I just you know I remember like looking in his eyes smushing his tummy making him laugh singing songs, like we had a great time.
0: Was he an inspiration for any of your writing?
1: I can't say that. I mean, for one thing, he was dyslexic. So reading came very hard to him and we didn't understand this until quite late, which was very unfortunate because he was alone with it. a smart child who's dyslexic can can pretend he's not for a long time. They They copy their, you know, they take cues from the other people in the class and so on. Um, so we got and for years I felt very guilty about that but I finally realized like I didn't know anything about dyslexia dyslexia and it was his teachers who should have known anyway um what did you ask (laughs) me come a long way
0: that's okay so let's let's go now he's he's growing up and he hits his teen years right and he has a little bit of issues with his learning and you're you found out about that in a roundabout way so what happens when he's in his teen years
1: well he's still struggling to catch up in terms of the reading and by now it's like he you know he's been left behind and my husband and i talked about it. it's like you're you, all the other students could read and they were floating ahead and you know on the sea happily and he was like lay way in behind watching them all go away mm. so he was traumatized by that long before he turned 15. But at 15, <laughs> that was stupid. Um, he actually called us one night. This was his first night of high school. And he said, Guess what I did tonight? I smoked pot. And <laughs> it was uh-huh. like that. He He just was very honest by nature. And we, you know, sat him down later and said, "Look, you know, you're going to run into this, and people do this, but don't, just don't ever be the person who brings the pot to the party." <laughs> and, uh, and then six weeks later, we realized what are we saying? And we sat him down and said, "Never mind that. Never do this again. Never." And um, you know, I think alcohol, well, addicts and alcoholics are are compelled. You know, once once, once they get a taste of it, 15 or pot or whatever, they can't stop. And he was a person who was vulnerable to addiction to marijuana. And some people believe there are no such people. Well, I'm here to tell you, there sure are. It was a terrible plague. I mean, we once went to LA where he had moved to to see him because he was in bad shape and we found him skeletal. You can't eat when you get to a certain point you just throw up uh, and you can't stop smoking but you never get high
0: yeah the body i believe gets an immunity to it if i understand oh interesting
1: correctly. i never really knew that yeah
0: but i think you build up like it's like a tolerance where mm-hmm, that makes yeah. a lot of sense yeah okay so um how old is he now i mean at 15 so he goes to all through all the high school having this drug and alcohol addiction and, I mean, how is this also affecting you and your career moving
2: forward?
1: Well, actually, what happened is he went through all of ninth grade. We tried to get him all the learning help we could. But he was still, now he was drinking alcohol because his friends were drinking alcohol. And uh, he got to, like, the last two days of within finishing his ninth grade. And I don't even want to tell you, he did a very silly thing that um, that made his school kind of compelled to, uh, what do you call it? Kick him out. And um, so he never graduated from ninth grade, like because- Oh, wow. last two days. Um, So we sent him to a wilderness program, which is probably people know, but you you separate the child from everything that's familiar, all the people they ever used with, you put them in wilderness um, where they have to learn a lot of skills they don't have and they are constantly accompanied by a counselor and other kids who are in this boat and then they once a week they see a psychiatrist who specializes in this
0: now all of this is still going on before he makes his way to, to Los Angeles this is still in New York
1: oh wait yeah okay. he was only I think he was he was 15 when we sent him to wilderness And it was one of the most horrible days of my life because you have to let some people carry off people you don't know. Carry your kid to a place you've never been and entrust them
0: with your child. (laughs) How is this affecting your marriage?
1: Wasn't great. I mean, we actually, in, in a way, we came together. My husband has a very, very difficult job. He does very important work. I mean, I'm really proud of him, but it was very absorbing. He was determined to make his mark and he still is. And uh, I was left alone. I think he would not argue with that. I was left alone to take care of our son really almost the whole time.
0: You know, what's interesting, how much does this um, feel like the role that your sister played with you at this point is similar where she mothered you and she kind of was coddling you while well, your brother was not really being that nice. And he Well, here interesting. Are... I
1: mean, but I didn't expect my brother to take care of me. I
0: No, I, but I'm, maybe yeah. be a bit more friendly. Um, you know, but he's yeah. a teenager, 13, it's not a good time for young right. boys. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's so really... um yeah, but I did I did not expect to be literally left alone with the baby because he traveled a lot. He has an international job. And uh, my child was a baby when off he went. And, you know, that was very hard for me.
0: Were you having an opportunity to do any writing at that point?
1: Well, I had backed off on the journalism when my son was like three, because I realized I'm spending an awful lot of time out of the house. But yet I made a point of getting a kid. Why am I doing this? So then I started writing mysteries because they have a much longer deadline and you can work at home. And um, And I wrote two of those. I'm trying to think. When 9-11 happened, mm. um, I, ha- I was writing the third of a three-book mystery contract. And I just couldn't write it because it was set in New York. It was kind of... Uh, brittle, witty, you know, not a dark kind of mystery, but um, a smart kind of mystery, (laughs) a fun kind. And uh, you could, death was not fun anymore in New York City. And I actually wrote an article about this for the Times. Many mystery writers who had characters who lived in, you know, recurring characters who lived in New York had to find something else to do. Some of them sent them out of town. Some of them did a prequel, but it was, it was, difficult and i just gave up that book became darker and darker and darker until i knew there was no way the house would publish it or could
0: wow so now yeah. at what point then so the your son's out of his teen years right and it's time for him to develop a career um how does life unfold at that point
1: yeah i should add that he went from the the outdoor pro you know the wilderness program directly to a therapeutic boarding school and mm-hmm. He spent nineteen years, nineteen months there. Of course, he was sober. They were, you know, very vigilant about that. And um, you know, he made his way through that. It wasn't easy in the beginning, but then he started to do better and better. His learning problems continued to be a problem. It took me a long time to convince those people that if a kid is dyslexic, they have to find special help. You can see how angry I still am. I finally got a tutor for him that the school eventually made permanent because they finally got the message. But the first time I told his counselor there that he was dyslexic, he said, well, we don't like to label kids. It's <laughs> like ready to choke him. Anyway, he got through that school. He was sober for a while. And then he decided I can drink beer. So I'll just have a beer a week. And then that was the beginning of the end. of that
2: sobriety. If you are listening from Australia, Florida, or just from around the corner. From east coast to west coast outlets if you nodded to the dirty south straight, make a left and body, body Contact us. Leave your mark with your host, Vince Cortez.
1: And there was there was either breaks but did you ask me how i got back to my writing
0: yeah or oh, yeah. does it um so do how I work way back yeah. in and then like at what point when you realize he's using and you're trying to find answers then that the uh, alcohol anonymous or the al-anon types of uh, opportunities are, are are there for you to begin using like how does that ha- begin yeah.
1: well happen? unfortunately i did not know about that until after he was sober for the last, he's been sober for six years now. Mm. And when he got sober, I said something about addiction on the phone. We st- still talk every day. He's still in L.A. Um, and I said something about addiction. He said, you, "You don't understand addiction. You have to go to Al-Anon." And I went to Al-Anon because he told me to. And this was when, this is five years ago. Um, in this second meeting, I learned that. Actually, this was not about me learning about addiction; It was about me recovering my life after all the time that I had not been able to write. I could hope to write again. I had given up completely after all that time. Everybody I knew had been fired or d- retired or died, and you know i there's no way I was going to be able to sell a book again. Never mind if I could write anymore but after the fourth meeting of Al-Anon, I walked home, four-block walk, <laughs> I thought, you know, I could try to sell a book. I could fail.
0: I could try. And, what was um, going on in those meetings that was sparking this?
1: Glad biography? you asked. <laughs> what goes on in an Al-Anon meeting is um, basically people share their experience, strength, and hope. And that gives hope to other people who have come in hopeless. And there's, the, I mean, that's the basis of it. And that's really why I want to talk about this. I don't want to talk about my own problems. I want to talk about the incredible healing that people, I'm going to cry, receive in Al-Anon. Unbelievable. And and not that many people know about it. Everyone knows about it, hey. I don't know how many people know about Alan. There are 24,000 chapters worldwide. And yet wow. I have to explain what it is to a lot of people. Um, and it's just, it's a fellowship. It's not a club or a cult or anything like that. It's just a group of people who gather together to share what is very difficult to share with public people because you nobody wants to say, well, Mike, you know, how's your kid doing? Well, he's an addict. Yeah. <laughs> nobody wants to say that. So you lie and, you know, people keep it secret. And actually in Al-Anon, we, or they say, we're only as sick as our secrets. And there are a lot of truths to that. So, and that is why I'm here today. I want to share that there is this incredibly healing program open to anyone. It's not scary. It's not difficult. It's loving. It's gentle. You know, it's just, I just I mean, and I'm not alone. I cannot say enough about it. It has given me back my life and my and other people as well. You know,
0: so, with your son suggesting that you needed to go see that because you were <laughs> referencing addiction. What were you expecting was going to happen?
1: I don't I mean, we were he was sober by then. And we you know, we were. And you know, when he said you have to go to al I thought, Oh, fine. I'll be a good mother. I'll go to I was actually in, in uh, treatment for um, breast cancer at the time, which thankfully is over. But um, I thought, okay, as soon as I'm done with the treatment, I will go to an Al-Anon meeting and I will learn more about addiction. And as I said, you know, two meetings in, I realized this is not about my, my learning about addiction mm. for him. It's my re- literally recovery. Al-Anon, you know, AA has a recovery program. Al-Anon is a recovery program. You get back all the years that your life was destroyed by your parents or your your spouse or your kids.
0: Yeah, your social environment. Yeah. This, this is fantastic. So um, in the Al-Anon treatment now, how would you like to expand on both how you came out of this Al-Anon experience and then... Began writing again?
1: Well, um, first of all, I wouldn't call it a treatment. It's just, I mean, a, a program is the most people. Okay. There are books, there are, you know, steps like the AA steps. Not everybody does them. There are a million slogans and adages that are really wise. A lot of them are funny. Um, so I never came out of it. I was at an Al Anon meeting last night. I'm chairing one tomorrow. Um, most people don't leave. Who would want to? <laughs> it's just, i don't even know if anybody does so um the people have been 20 years 30 years and because once you learn you want to give and that's the point i'm at thank god so um there was another part to your question
0: how you I, began writing again
1: oh yeah so as i said i can i the fourth meeting i somebody mentioned hope that they had hope <clears throat> excuse me for their own life even though they were having problems with their alcoholic father and i thought hope oh hope i remember that that was fun yeah i mean you didn't always get what you wanted but you if you live in hope, it's kind of neat and then i you know and then i walked home and thought i could hope to sell another book and i would fail maybe but i could hope if i don't try it's definitely not going to succeed and and literally when i got home I had been writing something for my own amusement, and I thought, "Oh, I know how to turn this into a saleable book." And I sat down and I wrote my notes. And I started the next day. I, I mean, that's—I don't think everybody goes home from their fourth Ellen <laughs> meeting um, in that state, but I sure did.
0: Now, this, so you're you experienced an Ellen on a healing that needed to take place since you were a child at age seven, most likely. Yeah. So you are popped open as far as what the possibilities life can hold for you moving forward you realize that that doesn't have to define you that can help cultivate who you've become and and so share with me what the elanon experience has created in you then besides the healing and the wanting to stay there what 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 do you feel was the biggest growth that you experienced in that besides just feeling good and healing
1: Well, obviously, being able to write again. And also having this intuitiveness to keep trying to sell it, which took a long time because I had hope. And I knew if I didn't try in the same story. Um, And I didn't take things personally. I knew I could write. I'd written books before. all the many rejections I got, you know, everybody said, Oh, it's wonderfully written, but it'd be so hard to sell, basically.
0: It gave you the opportunity. To, oh,
1: to heal then... from yeah. So now I think of myself as having survived this, not crushed by it, not you know, never had a happy childhood. I don't think about that.
0: That was some very difficult work you went through, both on I mean, to realize that you needed to heal. And that entire time you raised that child and you still needed to heal and you wouldn't find out until through that child and he's exactly. an adult.
1: <laughs> exactly. You
0: know, it's amazing how life teaches. We think sometimes we get it on the front end and we're back loaded. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so
2: that. this is fantastic story. If you have a story to share, tell us, how are you going to leave, your, leave mark? your mark? Contact us, leave your mark with our host Vince Cortez, be our guest. Now you did touch on saying
0: you had cancer. Can you share with me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I was super lucky. I went for a routine check. Um, I actually went a month early and when I got there, the person said, you're a appointment is next month. And I said, oh hell, well, since I'm here, could you just do it today? And she said, oh, fine. And um I had a teeny tiny, very aggressive kind of cancer that my radiologist, who was superb, picked up. And later the surgeon told me she saved your life. Not many people mm-hmm. would have noticed that. And so I had biopsy. It was, you know, malignant. And luckily I needed only a lumpectomy. It hadn't spread and I did radiation no chemo so you know it was how long
0: ago was that
1: that was five years
0: yeah that's always the 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 cancer is one of those things that just kind of play with your mind
1: oh you know it was that was such a turning point because up until then as I mentioned I had been clinically depressed so many times and you know near suicidal pretty I knew I wasn't gonna do it but I wished and um (laughs) And suddenly, when I got the cancer, at after crying and trembling and hugging my husband <laughs> memorably, um, I said, Damn it, you're not going to kill me. Are you kidding? I will not use a curse word, but the heck with you, cancer. No. Suddenly, I was like this person who clung to life, who was determined to fight instead of this middle miserable person thinking, oh, well, you know, if I die, fine. So... Um, I, you know, and then once I was done with the treatment, I became the happiest I had ever been. Wow. Not just this because I, yeah. So yeah.
0: you're having a really nice, happy ending to what was just a life of just total chaos. From, <laughs> this is, Very much so. This and entirely
1: nice. thanks to Alanon, Entirely. A hundred percent.
0: You've led me to the fork in the red now. Yeah. <laughs> How would you like to leave your mark?
1: Well, you know, um, I've thought about this, and certainly I would like to let people know about Al-Anon. There are so many people suffering who don't know about it, whose lives are being devastated, you know, and some of them live far away from Al-Anon meetings. Now there are Zoom ones, which is a blessing, although they're not the same as in person. Um, But anybody can go. Um, You can go around the world, you know, so... (sighs) I just want people to know there's hope and that's, that's really what I like to do. Um, It's
0: a beautiful thing. I mean, to, to spread hope and, 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 and good uh, joy and, and uh, that you have it inside of you. I mean, that voice that was running you down and ragged and maybe the voice that took you to cancer snapped you right out of it when you, when you changed the dialogue of it. So Mm -hmm an enormous testimony of what you'd gone through like basically your entire life to be where you stand now is an amazing feat so i, I commend you for that i thank <laughs> you for coming on and sharing this this is just an amazing story this is why i wanted to come on you're um, you're much stronger than you know i'll tell you well that. I,
1: I used you to call myself much
0: stronger than you know so when
1: my son needed help i used to call myself the world's most reluctant strong person because um, I had not been strong, but I had to, I had to, to take care of him.
0: Out of curiosity, would you call yourself a reluctant strong person now? No, I no, don't it's think so.
1: second nature to me. I, you know, and I, I do everything I can to help other people. Like new people come into Al-Anon meetings and I say to them, now we chat on Zoom, um, you know, I'm so glad you came in. I've been where you are. Many people have found help in this healing program. Don't feel embarrassed because you cried. Most people cry the first time they share. I share, And, uh, you know, I, I the opportunity, oh, I'm sorry, crying again. It's just very moving to be able to yeah. help people to what you've experienced.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it gives you a lot of joy and it reminds you how you got here.
0: There's strength in the tears, so don't worry about that.
1: Thank you. <laughs> that's, the beginning,
0: that's the beginning of the fight going the other direction.
1: Yeah, thank you. You're, thank you for your understanding. It I is.
0: totally understand. Well, Ellen, we, we need to look for your new book, Must Read Well. And would you share with the audience where we can find your book so we can go out there and make some purchases and any other social media that you would like to bring our attention to?
1: This is the book. Okay. I like the cover a lot. Um, it's uh, it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, you know, as a, an I, Apple book to read on your iPad through bookshop.org, which is a way of ordering from small stores. Um, I have an, a, a website, Um all the reviews the book has gotten are on that as well as information and about and book sorry reviews of previous books which are many and articles that I wrote for the times and the new yorker and um and I'm on facebook perfectly public look me up
0: okay Um, and it's p-a-l-l
1: it is just in case you don't want to misspell
0: your last name yeah Yeah. wow wonderful it's Always good to hear a happy ending, Ellen. Always good. I
1: got to tell you, it's great to be here. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. We will be in touch.
1: Okay. Love it.
0: Thanks for listening to Leave Your Mark today. Tune into our next episode of Leave Your Mark with Vince
2: Cortez. Be blast. You just left your mark. Thanks for, Thanks for listening. Listen to more episodes on demand. Just click Leave Your, your mark. mark with Vince Cortez.